Hi, this is Colin Gavin and you're listening to Tell Craig Your Story Podcast. Hey guys, Craig here. Welcome to another edition of the podcast, Tell Craig Your Story. 
Today we'll be speaking to singer-songwriter and recording artist Colin Gavin. Now, Colin is 28 years old from Dublin, Ireland. He has signed to BEO Records, which is one of the biggest labels in Ireland. His first two solo releases, Your Endless Slumber and A Voice for the Urban Darlings, uh, have both reached number one in the Irish charts. Now, he's also being played in over 40 different radio stations across the U.S. and Canada. Now, due to the COVID, he has had to cancel his U.S. and Japan tour. But during this period, he's been writing new material and he'll have a new album out around Christmas time this year. But before we go, please go to our website. We are at Podbean. Tell Craig your story at podbean.com. And we're on all the social medias, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We have a YouTube account, at Tell Craig Your Story. We have WeChat for our Chinese listeners and VK for our Russian listeners. And we also have a link tree there which tells you where Tell Craig Your Story podcast is streaming. We are on all the major streaming services. I'd also like to give a shout out to our sponsor, Malvina Things. You can go to their Instagram, Malvinas underscore things, or you can go to their website, www.malvinathings.com. But before we go, I would like to pay tribute to two people that have passed away recently. Uh, Firstly, Eddie Van Halen, who was one of my biggest guitar heroes. One of my first concerts here in Newcastle was Van Halen and I stood in front of Eddie Van Halen and watched him do all his solos and he did the Eruption solo and I was just in awe. Just an amazing talent and he will be a loss in the music world. And also a former guest, Casey Bennett. I only interviewed Casey five months ago and he seemed in perfectly fine and healthy and you know we talked about when I would go to Los Angeles next time that I would go to his house and we were going to have a jam and he was going to show me around uh, where he lived so uh, my condolences go out to uh, the families all right here we go this is my chat with Colin Gavin on Tell Craig Your Story podcast Hi, Colm. How are you doing today? Hey, Craig. How's it going? I'm doing good. How are things with you? Yeah, I'm doing good, thanks. Thank you very much for your time. I know that you're a busy man with, with all your music. and So my, my first question is, how are you doing in the pandemic? Is your family staying safe? And how is it going in Ireland? Yeah, things are good. I mean, with my own family... My, my mom and dad wouldn't be the two most social people in the world. They weren't exactly ripping up nightclubs before this all started. But <laughs> they're two quite humble people. We have two dogs at the moment, a golden Labrador named Boomer and a little Jack Russell called Jack. And their their time is is well occupied with those two. So they, they get in their daily walks and all that stuff, not just the dogs, my mom and dad too, you know. So, yeah, yeah we're staying we're staying as sane as, as can possibly be, yeah. And for Ireland, is it is it starting to sort of break away from the, the, the lockdown or is it still just being cautious at the moment? 
Well, I feel sometimes, Craig, that it's like two, one step forward, two steps back. I mean, there was a point, there was a point around sort of mid-August where we were at two and three cases a day. And then with the reopening of the schools, that seems to have gone back up into the 200s and 300s. But oh, dear. From, as you know yourself, like from the height of things in April and May, I kind of figured fairly quickly this was going to be a fluctuating kind of situation. So, and, and as you know yourself, nobody has really got any hold on it. This is a brand new thing for all of us. Yes. And, and especially, I mean, I think, and certainly for me, the most disappointing thing is how much it's decimated the arts in this country. I mean, from, yes. you know, from, from live performance to even something as simple as going to a museum for some people. Um, going to a, a cafe to listen to some live music during the day to meet up with a friend. I mean, at the moment, people are being encouraged not even to go into restaurants. Everything is outdoor wow. seating and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, we're getting there slowly but surely. My fingers are crossed that maybe by the end of the year, there'll be some margin of difference, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And did you have to cancel anything uh, during this period? Did you have gigs booked up or did you have like a tour or like recording time? Man, like you wouldn't believe. I was to do... Yeah. I had dates in the United States from April to July of this year, which oh. every one of them were cancelled. I was also supposed to be in Japan in November uh, doing a few gigs. It was going to be like half holiday, half kind of a mini tour. That's all been cancelled. So it's been, on, on one level, it's been excruciating. But if you sat down and thought about it for too long, you'd just, you'd go insane. So I'm just yeah. trying to keep the sunny side out as much as humanly possible, you know? Yes. And it, have you rescheduled this this tour these tours or is it just like a, just a wait and see you can't you can't really plan anything at the moment because it's uncertainty right? It's a real question of wait and see. I mean, anyone who yeah. I've spoken to who's been doing gigs abroad, everything's just been put on pause and kind of will be revisited in twenty twenty one. Now, as far as Ireland goes, we're kind of on standby all the time because there's small gigs happening. There's like forty eight fifty seater venues or, or venues that would have usually held three and four hundred people that are now to accommodate like small oh, clusters of people and there's you know they're happening all around the country at the moment i mean particularly in dublin where i am there's there's some and then there's others that have been pushed out to december so it's a very uncertain time and i i'd love to start i i have it in the, pi the pipeline between myself and my manager to organize some sort of restricted seating gigs between now and december but you know, you what the typical situation is you organize one that gets cancelled and then another one pops up. So it's it's a crazy time. There's no question. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in this time, then, uh, have you been writing new material? Have you been sort of doing online gigs? Uh, tell, tell us a, bit, a little bit about that. Well, back in April, sort of late March, early April, when all of this kicked off, I realized that this is probably going to be the only situation where all we have is time. And, yes. You know, all of these commitments you know flights that get cancelled gigs that get cancelled I thought I'm not really one for home recording but I thought I set myself a challenge by the end of April to bring out kind of a mini album it was called Flamingo Variations Home Recordings Volume 1 and it was right. six six original songs and two original spoken word pieces and initially Ooh. this year which I still plan to do I had intended to bring out a new EP but it would have been recorded with a full band and various instrumentation but with this it's just as I say it's me and the songs so it's available now on SoundCloud, but that was kind of a task that I suppose if it weren't, well, I know for a fact if it weren't for COVID, I never would have done that. Yes. So out of the strangest of situations, you know, trouble in the best laid plans, as Bowie would have said. Yes. And you were saying before, like, uh, in terms of for Ireland, have, can you think of a time where something like this has ever happened before? 
to the live music and not just live music but just like entertainment in general i mean movies everything tourism people wanting like you said before i can't think of any time that it's virtually just shut it hold down completely right no it's 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 absolutely insane and i was only speaking to someone the other day where i thought as i was as driving through my village every second person was wearing a mask and Mm. i just thought if, if i'd have sat down with you craig in may of last year and said from a year from now, we're going to be yes. walking around the public with masks over our faces and being cautious of who we interact with and distancing ourselves from older members of community. It would have been completely unthinkable. And yes. now we're sort of living in, in a lot of ways, it, it feels like a kind of end of days type thing. You know, if this had happened back in 2012, the Mayan calendar would have been correct. You know, <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah, absolutely. But also in saying that, I had a look on your Facebook as well and you've been keeping busy. Now, I do believe you had a a songwriting masterclass uh, retreat at the Notre Dame University. So so, so tell us a little bit about that. I'm very interested to hear about this. Well, that was – so I was approached in late July by – uh, sort of some group members from Notre Dame University, those who wouldn't be familiar, Notre Dame is one of the big Ivy League colleges over in the States, but their global center is based in a place called Kylemore Abbey, which is, I've been describing it as like a Hogwarts in the hills of, of Connemara in the west of Ireland. Now, initially the masterclass was to go ahead at the end of August. It's been pushed now to the end of November just because of COVID regulations and we realized that even though at the time we could have only done it with limited numbers, if we had have done it in August, it would have been maximum like five people. And we didn't want to do that. So we've moved it to the end of November. So that'll take place between the 27th and the 29th of November. And really what it was, I was invited by uh, two people in particular, Zoe Langsdale and Lisa Caulfield, who are kind of are running the show down there at the moment in terms of events. And Imokti is our Irish word for events. And... I, I mean, I was thrilled, you know, to, to have your, your skills acknowledged by a governing body like Notre Dame was just a huge thrill. But really what it would entail is kind of a weekend of looking at songwriting through the lens of contemporary music. So I'll be analysing things like the Great American Songbook, you know, the wonderful songs, parlour music of the jazz era in the 40s and 50s. And then right. looking at how the great songwriters like Lennon and McCartney and you know, the golden age of songwriters in the 70s, James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, Jackson Brown, and kind of seeing how they employed the same, it, it's a formula, really. You know, I mean, when you explain it to people who don't play music, it's very hard to to put into terms that make sense, but it's looking at different ways to use the musical alphabet. And so that's what the weekend yes. will entail. So I'm really looking forward to it. That's a very interesting thing. That's great that as a musician for you, You've definitely done your homework and and all different styles of music. So, speaking of that, let's let's go back to where you grew up. So, did you grow up actually in Dublin, Ireland? I did. I'm born and raised. Yeah. Born and raised. So, we actually in the city or we out in the outskirts? I'm out in the suburbs. I'm in a place called Clondalkin, and I'm actually second generation Clondalkin. My parents grew up here too. So, right. Yeah. So were your parents musical as well? Like, is that is that where you sort of developed your style of playing? Or no, neither of them play musical instruments. Um, oh, on right. My, on my father's side, uh, Gaelic football and hurling is a huge thing. My <laughs> yes. dad, my dad yes. played hurling for Dublin, and my my uncle Jim was the oh. Dublin 
senior football manager. My, my grandfather played football yeah. and hurling too. And but, but both of them, my mom and my dad, would have a keen interest in music. So there would have been music yeah. around the house, things like Elton John. Um, I have a vivid memory of a cassette of my dad's by Van Morrison called Poetic Champions Compose. On my mom's side, my uncle Ben Malloy was a huge, huge music fan. And when I was young, like he'd, he'd show me how to put a record on, on, on a vinyl, you know, dropping the needle on the vinyl and all that yes. stuff, you know, records like Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy by Elton John and David, you know, I remember him showing me the sleeve for Diamond Dogs by David Bowie and just being in equal parts terrified and intrigued by what yes. the hell this guy was, yes. you know? Yes. And, um, yeah. I had a similar thing with my father as well. He would, uh, he had the Kiss album, Destroyer, and that they're they're all like that. I mean, they in their face paint, and I was like, yeah. I'm a little scared, but I'm also very very interested to hear Absolutely. what is what is on there. So, when did you sort of develop firstly your vocals, and then playing sort of musical instruments? Well, on my on my dad's side, my grandfather Jimmy Gavin was, you know, he wasn't an Irish folk singer in the traditional sense of the word, but I always refer to him as such because at parties, he would stand about the blue and start to sing the Isle of Inish Free or the Mountains of Morn, Red as the Rose. And so, our summers, my grandfather and my grandmother Jimmy and Anne Gavin come from West Clare, and my summers growing up were all spent down in Clare, and you know, if you can imagine. Claire in the 1990s, you know, we, we think about the world today and how far we've moved forward. Claire in the 1990s, I mean, for someone like me, I could have been stepping back into the 50s. You know, you walk into a pub, <laughs> people could still smoke. You know, you'd see the old farmers crouched over their pint with their paddy caps pulled down, just intense and intent at, at, at having their pint and having their chit chat. And then someone would stand up unannounced and start to sing a song. And, and I always felt that that notion of the Shanachie, the storyteller, just captivated me when I was young. And even though I was, you know, in my teens, I was a rocker. You know, I had, if you want blood, you've got it by ACDC teacher. <laughs> I was, uh, I, I, I probably stood out, but I was still captivated by this notion of um, in a scale, you know, tell a story and tell a story within a song. And I just thought, you know, some of these men who, who are long gone now, but at the time I would have seen men in their late seventies, early eighties, stand up and sing of an Ireland that was just so far out of reach for them at that time. And there was something very poignant and, and, and very moving about it. And I think that stayed with me even today. You know, when I, when I write stories, there's a barometer in the back of my mind that is probably set to that clock in, in some way. Yeah. So it, it, that was certainly my first introduction that this is something that you can do. I didn't know at that time people could do it as a living, but I, I knew it was something that could be part of the fabric of your life. Yes. And... Is that something that is popular still in, in Ireland or is it sort of going away from that more like a modern sort of, could you actually go into a pub like before COVID and, and see these people still doing this? Absolutely, you could. And, and in, in Clare in particular, there was a fantastic pub in Curra Clare Village. I want to get all my locations right here. Uh, Welsh's pub. Now, unfortunately, since it's shut down, but it was run by a wonderful man, Arthur, who I believe has passed away since. And they had what was called the Chapel Gate Singers Club. And what they do is they had an old stick like a shillelagh, I think you call it. And once you pass the shillelagh, that was your turn to sing. And that was happening right up until COVID. Uh, so those sort of traditions do still happen. Yeah. I had a couple, I met some Irish people here in Australia and they were trying to get me to do this at one stage. We were just, you know, just at a bar and 
I didn't know what the hell to do. <laughs> and these guys were so good at what they did. It's a bit of a talent to, to actually do that, to just off the top of your head, just all of a sudden, just go straight into a, into sort of like a poem or like a, you know, like a spit. It's just great. Fantastic. Absolutely. So, so tell us, when did you sort of develop, what was that age that you sort of developed that uh, singing, doing that sort of style? How old were you? Well, that kind of, I never really got engaged. That's a style that we would refer to as Shanos. And Shan, Shan means old and Nos means style. That was just something I would have witnessed as a kid. But I became interested in music when I was probably about 11 or 12. I'd been right. on a holiday with my family in Florida. And my dad rented out this sort of big uh, people carrier. And as we would drive from sort of Disneyland to Universal Studios and, and, and beyond, there was these golden oldie stations. And for the first time, I heard groups like the Eagles and Bob Dylan the birds, Jackson Brown, you know, I was hearing all this for the first time. And when I came home from that summer, I I had convinced my mom the summer previous to buy me guitar, guitar. And now I was just adamant. I was like, this is what I want to do. And in 2005, I went to the Clondalkin School of Music, which is kind of our academy of music. It's, it's very reputable around Dublin and Ireland. And it's run by a guy called Peter Stanton. Peter, in his teens, was in the Army Number no. 1 band in Ireland, which at the time, if you were familiar with it in the military, was about as prestigious as you could get as far as musical, as musical ensembles would go. And he was a French horn player, but he went, you know, he went through various changes in his musical life. And in 95, he opened the Clondalkin School of Music. And yeah, 10 years after that, 2005, I joined up. And it, it was, you know, it was... One of the things that people of my age would have discouraged you from going to the School of Music was it was very theory driven. So from the very beginning, we were taught musical notation to identify key signatures and also in day to day life to, to be able to interpret like a fridge humming. Is that in the key of A or is that in the key of G? You know, things like that. So I was very fortunate, you know, my musical ear was developed um, whether I wanted it to be or not when I was quite young. And so through the School of Music, I studied uh, classical vocal singing, piano, guitar, um, and then would have been introduced to different stringed instruments like banjos, uh, bass guitar. The only thing I never really developed was my rhythm, which is still absolutely crap. So I was never good at percussive <laughs> instruments or anything. Uh, and I can't dance for the life of me. So that's just that, that's my cross to bear, Craig, you know? That's right. <laughs> so you were saying that, you know, you're supposed to go to the US about this year. Uh, you were in the U.S. before, so was this like a family thing or a holiday, or were you actually going over there to sort of pursue this sort of musical career? Musical career. Oh, this year it was completely a tour. There was no yes. holiday aspect to it all. This was all just work. And um, over the years, like it's something I've always wanted to do, and I've kind of reached a point in Ireland where. I can put on a show. I mean, listen, we're we're all terrified. It's like your twenty first birthday. You just hope people will turn up. But I've been solo since two thousand and fourteen, and I've kind of developed an audience over here. And with social media being the way it is, if someone, you know, you're only ever a couple of degrees of separation from someone in the United States or in China or in Australia. Like, I mean, that's how we got in touch with each other. You know. Yes. And I had gotten various messages from promoters who were like, "Look." come over and do a week stint here and you know we can set you up with another promoter who's in Baltimore or another promoter who's in Massachusetts so I, I kind of this has been something I was partly terrified and uh, partly thrilled by the idea and my music has always been quite well received in the states you know at a period in time I'd get more airplay in Oregon than I would in Dublin but that's just the gist yeah, right. of the of it. so that would have been between April and July of this year um, I'm hopeful though you know when things do clear up a little bit 
maybe 2021 we can do all that again. Yeah, right. So before you went to university, you were you starting to form bands there, and so tell us about that. Was, was it bands, or would would you prefer to be just uh, doing solo sort of work? Well, from the time I was about 15, I used to meet up with a bunch of people and, and, and Dubliners will be familiar with Central Bank in around 2006, 2007 for the scene heads, the rockers, as, as they were called. And lads would hang around with their skateboards and their guitars and try and look cool. And I was one of them trying desperately to look cool. And I remember I was sitting with a few friends of mine and we were just, I think we were playing Hey There Delilah was the big song of that summer. And two French tourists I think they were French. In my mind, it's, it's, it's born into my brain that they were French, but they could have been Italian or whatever. And threw some money into my guitar case, which was on my feet. And I thought, God, that was a lovely thing to do. And the two girls that I was with said, you should do that. You should come into town and you should busk. You should sing on the streets. So from about summer of 2007, I would busk intermittently. I would go in every couple of weeks. I'd tell my mom I was just going in to buy CDs because I was too embarrassed to tell her that I was going to sing. <laughs> and I'd sing on the street corner. And busking was something that throughout my life, I mean, from the age of about 18 to 21, I, I busked consistently on Grafton Street in Dublin. And, you know, in school I was in, I was in, you were in whatever band you could get in, you know. Yeah, if, that's right. Yes. If someone said to you, we need a bass player, go out and get a bass, you'd borrow one and you'd learn your C, G, F and E and your minor pentatonic scale and just to be in a band. But, you know, I think I was too interested in the folkies of the 60s. So the lads were like, listen, you can't be in our punk band because, you know, you're just doing <laughs> stuff. But when I was yeah. in college, I formed my first band, which was called Shiloh Palace, and there was five of us. And, you know, we played a lot of college functions and we would have played on the college music circuit and all around Dublin and whatever night that we could possibly get booked on, we'd, we'd play. But it was a great learning experience. It was my first time fronting a band. I think everybody had their own interests. You know, some were like, this is something I'll just do in college. Others were going to travel after they left. Yeah. And so in 2014 was when I went solo. But yeah, throughout the years, it would have been in various musical situations, I suppose you could say. And just to have that experience straight up, uh, being in a band, I mean, again, if you haven't been in a band or if you haven't played music, it's very difficult to get the band together, like four or five guys all at the one time. It's just like being in a relationship, really, with four or five other people. <laughs> so good times. Do you have any stories about, about the, you know, the, those bands before you went solo? Any particular stories? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, stories that I can share now is a different thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I was in Griffith College from about 2009 to 2012, and that's sort of just slap-bang in the centre of Dublin. It was, a, it was a musical degree? No, it was actually a degree in journalism and visual media, so it, it wasn't music-related oh. at all. But um, the guys, you know, in college you meet like-minded people, and there was a musical society that was developed by a guy, David Kozak, who is still highly involved in the music scene in Dublin. And he was putting a multitude of bands together, you know, like he had a strictly percussive band, he had a blues band. And I met him one day outside the canteen and he says, I've seen you with a guitar, so I assume you're in some way musical. And so we got talking and really hit it off. He was a fantastic guy. And we through that, we'd meet other like-minded individuals and it, it eventually became like a five-piece band. Um, and it was fantastic. You know, we played, like I said, a lot of the big college functions and the doors opened very, very quickly. You know, one of the girls yes. in the band, her boyfriend was uh, a, a broadcaster on RTE at the time, which is our, our nation's big broadcaster in radio and television. And he got us on a show 
And it was, I mean, that was a huge deal. Because as far as we were concerned, if you were on RTE, you'd made it. And, yes. you know, that was, I remember going into college on the Monday morning and that was, that was just a really exciting time. There's loads yeah. of fantastic memories. But kind of like what you said, it, it shaped a lot of things. Because I certainly feel, I certainly felt at 19, I'm, I wasn't the musician I am today. And when I look back, I can kind of see all the holes in my game, so to speak. Yes, yeah. It, it was a wonderful, wonderful learning experience. I wouldn't, and, and they're all good memories. You know, there's no negative yes. connotations with them at all. Now, did any of those uh, band members go off to do their own musical career or is it they just sort of faded away? Or are you sort of the one waving that flag for that, for that band? The only other that I'm aware of is the drummer, David Kozak. And David, for a long time, was involved with a David Bowie tribute group called Heroes from Mars. Um, mm. he, he's a fantastic uh, percussive musician. He, he just, you know, he could sit at a set of bongos or, or a drum kit, as, as was always the case with us, and just take to it like a duck to water. And was always an incredibly intriguing guy. And, and I know he's involved more in the promotional aspect of it, and he runs a radio show of his own. And mm. our... our Pats just don't cross anymore, you know. I mean, he was yes. very much involved in the corporate music scene. I was involved in the original music scene, and so I, a lot of times, anytime I do a Q and A on Instagram, I get asked the question, "Would you guys ever work together in the studio or anything?" Considering that you're yes. still on the scene, I'd never rule it out. I mean, I always loved working with David. It's yeah. always just a question of, are we busy or are we not busy? So you never yeah, know what right. could happen. I think I think with music in general, it's sort of like a never say never, and that's the beauty about uh, music. Age isn't really like a, a factor with some of the some of the jobs. That it is a factor, so you know you can pick up a guitar anytime. You can you know, record anytime. It's just yeah, I just like that about playing music and play, and playing guitar and being able to do that. So I can't wait to get back to Shanghai and, uh, you know, <laughs> join my band and play some music again. So, so you go, you go through that band and then you, you go solo. So how, when you first started going solo, how did you sort of start writing your own music? Was it difficult? How, how do you set it up? Is it a riff? Is it is it melodies? What factors was it at that time? Well, one of the things I should, I should stress is that through all of this period of time, I was still in the Clondalkin School of Music, so I was regularly attending musical lessons. So my ah. musical knowledge was was growing as well. And I, I spent ultimately fifteen years there. So I both through my teacher and just through studying musical academia, I was constantly learning. And like you know yourself as a musician. And, and, and have space occupied by something that wasn't there beforehand but it was different because now when I sit down with the guitar to write I'm used to thinking of drums bass lead guitar keyboard and now it's just me and of course like I could have gone into the studio and made a record and, and, and dubbed all those things but I think this, the most daunting thing was stepping on a stage for the first time and not being able to turn over my shoulder and see my pals there. You know, it's kind of like going into battle without your comrades. And that really mentally affected me for about the first three or four months because yeah, right. it, was just, it was so lonely. And at that time, I didn't. I was working to develop an audience. I didn't have one. I mean, I, I at that point, I would have done gigs that maybe three people were at if I was lucky. And it was it was just a really lonely place. I never considered stopping for a moment, though. You know, my, my yes. goal was always, I'll do this 
forever and I was you know I was reading books about um, the law of attraction and the power of manifesting things into your life and when I'd be playing to three people I'd try and visualize 300 and um, and thankfully those manifestations came to reality but it would be at that point it would, would have taken another year or two before they did. Right now speaking of that it's always interesting for me to find out from other musicians about that sort of stage fright or getting up and playing in front of a, a people so when you were first sort of gigging like you said before you just said as a solo artist it was a little bit difficult but do you have stage fright is it nervous for you to get up on stage and play in front of you know a large group or is it it's just something water off a duck's back <laughs> i still get apprehensive um yes. and i think more so like it's some people say it's easier to play to more people than it is to few and i i kind of agree with that because yes. sometimes the most daunting crowd is 15 people whereas when there's 200 or 300 you can kind of categorize them as all the one and just close your eyes and do it you know but yes. i i get kind of like a healthy apprehension but i think if i didn't i shouldn't really be in the business because that's half the fun is overcoming the nerves and then having a great gig anyway you know yes absolutely absolutely so you start off playing uh, your solo gigs. When was uh, the actual you started recording, or was were you signed first? What came first, and how did this all come about? You're signed to, I do believe, one of the biggest uh, Irish labels, BEO Records. That's right. Um, so tell us about how that all came about. Did you approach them? Did they approach you? Did they watch a gig? Uh, did they hear demos? Tell us how that all come about. Well, up until the point that I went solo, my band Shiloh Palace had made a multitude of attempts at recording EPs and singles and stuff, and everything was just ultimately shelved because the band over the course of between 2010 and 2013 went through a, a host of different lineups. And I, I admitted at the last gig I did with just myself and my drummer David, he was playing the Cajon, which was a gig in Clondalk in a place called the Serum Wheel. It was right. around New Year's Eve of 2013, he said to me, I think it's time you went solo. He says, because I know you've got all this music in you that you want to get out, and I think you're only going to be able to do it on your own, and then maybe one day we'll look at a band again. So in 2014, I was doing gigs to just kind of build an audience up, and I was still, I was teaching music at the time to kind of make ends meet. And towards the end of the year, uh, a guy, Kyle Roach, who was one of my teaching colleagues, was getting, he was studying sound engineering in Maynooth University. And I said to him, I'd love to record some tracks, even if they were just in the school where we were teaching at the time. He yes. said, I said, I need to get some stuff out there because I had nothing online. I didn't have a Facebook page. There was nowhere for people to hear my music. So it was like you'd go to a gig and a promoter would be like, where can we hear you? And I was like, I don't know. Well, so, <laughs> you, you can hear me here, you know. So in about August of 2014, what we would do is in the school, once the classes would end, we would turn the classroom into a makeshift recording studio and we recorded nice. five original songs of mine. And I remember on the last night of the last track that we recorded, which was a song called Never Say Goodbye. I remember this was, it was quite fitting. That was the night that Robin Williams had passed away. And I remember oh, after I released the EP, it was, it was yeah. tragic. And I remember after I released the EP, I dedicated it to his memory because that had happened on the last night that we recorded the last track. So that was my first release as an independent artist and it came out on the 22nd of september so kind of around this time in 2014 
and it got to number one in the Irish singer-songwriter charts. Wow. From that moment, everything changed. You know, I mean, I was being contacted from bookers who, up until that point, I never would have dreamed in getting, of getting a gig in, in the venue. Artists, you know, this is one of the great things about Facebook, is people who had never heard of my music were becoming aware of my music, and also uh, contemporaries of mine in the, in the Irish music scene. So from that point, it, it just became a launch pad. But in 2015, um, BO Records is run by Moya Brennan and her husband, Tim Jarvis. And their daughter, Ashling and myself are about the same age. And we kind of crisscrossed on the Dublin music scene. And I was aware of the fact that they were, their family had a, a record label, BO Records. And so I, I kind of, I knew Tim and Moya reasonably well just from playing the scene and everything. But towards the end of the year, I was recording my first album with Adam Walsh, which was called A Voice for the Urban Darlings. And yes. there had been sort of, I, I had talked to Tim Jarvis about the concept of, of signing with the label, but I didn't, you know, I, we didn't give it a huge amount of thought. In my mind, I thought it was just a passing idea and that, you know, nothing would come of it. Sorry, Colin, did you have a manager before that or was, were you doing all, the, all your bookings yourself? I did everything myself up until that right. point. Right, right, yeah. okay. So he came to, Tim and Moya came to one of my gigs in the Workman's Club in November of 2015 and he couldn't stay for the gig, but he said, listen, I'm interested in signing you. I think you should come out to the house in two weeks' time and we'll iron out the details, but I love your music and, and let's talk more. So it was kind of like, I got up to do the gig, and it's it's like you've already scored the winning goal before you played the game. You know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so I signed with Bill Records in November of 2015, and that Christmas, December the 18th, my record, "A Voice for the Urban Darlings," came out, and that again got to number one in the Irish charts. So it was uh, yeah, 2014, 2015 were two very memorable years. There's no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. So when when this came out. Obviously, you were getting success. You're getting radio play. So another one of my questions that I always sort of like to ask is, how do you deal with, like, this success? You've gone from playing to bars to, you know, a couple of people to all of a sudden just, you know, getting you regularly played on air. So how have you dealt with that? And even now? Well, I heard it best described once by Glenn Hansard when Glenn won the Oscar for once in 2007. Um, he, for a couple of years, he, he said that he was walking around in a daze, that he didn't really know how to deal with it all. And it was a conversation that he had with Bruce Springsteen, where Bruce said, what's happened is the old you has died and you're mourning mm. the death of the old you. But now you've got to put on, you know, now you've earned it because you're your whole life hoping that something yes. will come with this. Everybody who picks up a guitar wants to get to that point where you'll have an audience and you'll, you, you make records and all that kind of stuff. But for so many people, it just doesn't happen. And when it does, it's kind of like you're tugging the, the sleeve of the world your whole life. And then one day the world turns around and says, what, what do you want? Yeah, so that's, that's, right. your, that's your moment to, to act and to make something happen. But I think for me, I, of course it was a dream come true and it is, and I'm so lucky to get to do what I do every single day. But I try to just treat it like it was a natural progression. You know what I mean? Yes. So when you released this album, like you said, it had great success. Was it just Ireland that you toured? Did you do some international touring for this for this album? 
at that point it was all Ireland all of my mm-hmm. my promo work would have been in Ireland and, and any touring dates that I did and promotional dates would have all been Ireland but the the desire to go abroad was always there I think with me like I was very fortunate because when I got signed there still would have been and still is lots of people who aren't familiar with my music I mean I'm not a Dermot Kennedy by any stretch of the imagination but I I wanted to, I always wanted to feel like I had an audience in Ireland. And by that point, you know, I could do reasonably big venues. But for me, the test of longevity with an artist is like, can you put on a tour every year and, and, and fill auditoriums? And so I want, I still wanted to develop that audience in Ireland that I felt at that time was still kind of lukewarm to my music, you know? Yes. And then going after, after the tour, after the promotion of this tour, you know, you obviously went went back into studios. Have you released another album since that, or as far because as far as I can read, it's just been singles after this. Is that is that correct? Officially, with Bio Records, it's just been singles. But this year, I released, as I'm saying, the the album that I recorded at home, Flamingo Variations. But I hope, right. I'm hoping that I'll have another official release with Bio Records around Christmas time this year. Christmas time this year. Wow. Okay. And would have you released? that before COVID is was it because of COVID is that the reason why it's been pushed to the end of the year yeah I think initially in my mind I was hoping to have it out for the summer and because I couldn't assemble the musicians that I wanted due to COVID restrictions that had to go on the back burner but sometimes these things work out as happy accidents you know so I'm kind of just trying to trust in the fates and hope that this was all meant to happen when it was meant to happen (laughs) yeah right so you've had plans to uh go to the US, are there plans to come to Australia? And have you been to Australia? I've never been to Australia, but one of my songs, Bye Bye Little Bird, was in the top, I think it was number three or four in the top ten in Canberra. Uh, Recently, there's a a radio station, I can't think of the name at the moment, but um, I'm lucky, like I have a really good online musical distributor in A-Train Music, and they're based in San Francisco, but they they push my work out to all corners of the globe. So, yeah, I mean, if the opportunity was there, I'd take it in a heartbeat, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We're very welcome to come out here and, and tour. And also, uh, I'm, I'm actually living in Shanghai. Um, I'm here in Australia, but uh, uh, Shanghai as well. I think you would fit very, very well into the, the China. And you said you were going to go to Japan. If you're going to go to Japan, you must come to China as well. It's got a very, very good music scene. It's got a very good underground music scene, and there's a lot of people there that appreciate that this style of music. So I really do think that you should, if you're going to go to Japan, go go to <laughs> go to China as well. Um, have you had any sort of uh, interest with radio or with with any sort of uh, broadcasting over in China? No, not at all. And, and to be honest with you, I always felt it was maybe a market that was difficult to penetrate because I know censorship is a big thing, you know, with mm-hmm. regards to the internet in China. Um, but in Japan, I've had one of my singles, Rolling River, was number three in their charts. So I, and, and, and you know, again, I don't know how these things happen. You know, yes. <laughs> if, if I tried to think about it, I just, I'd, I'd get a brain melt. But no, I'd absolutely love to. I mean, I'd love to see as much of the world as humanly possible during the time that I have. So if, if China's on the cards, then China it is. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and speaking of which, uh, just outside of uh, the musical, have you done what traveling have you done outside of Ireland? Well, a lot of it would have been holiday based. Like I've been around the states, yes. um, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, parts of Europe, Belgium. You know, and there's there's more places that I'd love to see than I have seen. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, like I'd love to go to Italy. I've never been to Germany. I'd love to go to Berlin. So uh, obviously Australia. Um, yeah, there's 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 dozens dozens of places. So what can you tell our the listeners here in Australia, especially about this upcoming album? What, what can we expect from it? And tell me, how has your creating a, a song changed from when you first started to now? There's, well, there's a lot of questions there. <laughs> yeah, well, being a musical academic, I think, which is something you never shake off, I'm always trying to better myself musically. So, and that's, I don't mean it as in overcomplicating an idea, but I certainly wanted to develop my musical ideas and the way I express them. And with this upcoming record, the shape that I see it taken, it'll probably only be an EP, it'll be like four, maybe five songs, but it'll just give an example of the level of musicology and how much it changes. Now, I know listeners don't care about that type of stuff, and that's fine, but just for myself as a musician, I, I'd like, you know, when I, if please God, I reach my 50s, that I could look back on my music and say, you know, there was, there was definitely an arc where yes. I was challenging myself more and the music was, like I think of groups like Steely Dan, where from their first record to their last, the musicology just expands and it's yes. just this feast of melodic delights, you know? So, but as far as music goes, like, I consider myself a singer-songwriter, but that leaves me wide open to a multitude of genres. There's a bit of ragtime. Uh, there's a little bit of doo-wop influence. There's certainly big yeah, right. influence from the music of the 1940s and 50s. So uh, it'll be it'll be a feast of melodic delights, that's putting it yeah. simply. Now, uh, with your vocal style as well, did that come naturally? I mean, I've listened to some of your songs, and you've got an amazing vocal ability it's just amazing uh, i really really like it is that natural or did you really really have to work hard uh to do that yeah i mean i i never really and thank you very much for that by the way um i never class myself as a singer like when i when i have the term singer songwriter put in front of my name i lean more on the songwriter because oh, yes you know when i like i sing because that's the only way i can get the music across but i never I never would have rated my voice and I it took a long time to get comfortable with being a singer. And I guess as a teenager being in bands, like if you're playing screamo punk music, you don't hear yourself. So <laughs> That's I, right. I probably didn't hear myself properly until I was about, I mean, apart from, you know, being 15 and playing in Temple Bar and having people scream, you're crap, you know, like that was, uh, but no, like one of the things that I, I always stress is that, I, I don't have any discernible talent. I just learned a craft. That's it. You know, I was never, from the time I started playing, and my teacher Peter Stanton would still attest to this, I wasn't a stand-up musician. I, I don't even class myself as that now, but I'm always open to learning, and I always, I know that it's, it's in the process. It's in the practice. It's how much work you're willing to put in that you'll get back out of it. And I would say that to anyone who's listening who is an aspiring musician, that there's very, very few who are just born with talent that can pick up an instrument and, and get it from the first go. 
So if it's something that you love, engage with the abstract and, and set yourself a timetable and practice and work hard at it because, you know, guys who have talent, once their talent runs out, they say, okay, well, that's the end of my limitations, so I'll just stop. But the hardworking guy is never going to quit, you know what I mean? If you, right. if you never quit, you never lose. That's right. And I like the musicians that are, are out there to do it because they want to do it and it's a passion for them rather than seeing like them just doing it for the money and doing just doing it for the oh well you know you can you, and you can tell as well when, when you see a person play live you can just feel it you know yeah. that there's sort of passion for that sort of uh, absolutely um, so colin what does the future hold after post-pandemic for colin gavin well at the moment like if if covid had never happened I've kind of reached a point in Ireland where, you know, what I was looking forward to doing this summer is there's a great venue called the Button Factory. And last year I put on five shows that were all sold out shows. And that'd be like a 300, 350 capacity venue. And I was just hoping to do a lot more of that kind of style, like playing in theatres as opposed to bars um, around Ireland. So if COVID hadn't have happened this year, that's what would have happened. Um, And in conjunction with that, just sort of, I've always... Like my music up until this point has been very well received in the States. And so I'd love to just get into the heartland and and tour around the States for a period in time too. So a lot of touring. I mean, obviously a lot of new music being released and uh, just climbing that ladder, Craig, you know? Yeah. And is the, have you ever thought of moving to the US or is Ireland always going to be your home? Ireland's always going to be home. You know, I, yes. I, I, I'd love to use, I'd love to always have Ireland as a home base. I wouldn't rule out like living in New York for a couple of months because I've always had a huge fascination with the city. But yeah. I think Ireland will be where I'll always put roots down. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I should have told you before, uh, my last name is Maguire as well. Yeah. So very Irish, Irish-based. Uh, we go way back with my family. Ellis Gillen, right? Ellis Gillen. Really? Wow. Yes. So wow. I would love to visit there one day. I still haven't been there. It's crazy. Colin, tell us, is there anything that you are promotion, up and coming, and tell us about uh, your social medias where uh, our listeners can uh, find you? Well, I think the two sites that I'm most active on are Instagram and Facebook. So I'm, I'm just all one word, Colin Gavin on Instagram, C-O-L-M-G-A-V-I-N, and I'm Colin Gavin Music on Facebook. And, you know, I'm always trying to post new content as regularly as possible. Uh, most recently, I did a collaboration with a wonderful Irish singer, Isabel Jennings. Myself and herself did a version of my song, Some American Waltz, and that's kind of all over my social media at the moment. But I, I may do one or two more online gigs between now oh, and yes. But I'm kind of hoping, I'm leaning on doing some, you know, with, with limited capacity, some, some live gigs, or certainly around Dublin for the moment anyway, because in Dublin, we're not really supposed to be traveling outside of Dublin, so... Um, yeah, if you just keep your eyes peeled on my social media, um, and if you're interested in hearing more of my music, you can just go to Spotify or SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, all those, all good streaming services. So And your YouTube channel as well, which has got a few of your film clips as well, right? Yeah, yeah, there's some of my stuff on YouTube. I, I'm, I'm brutal with updating every form of social media so some sites <laughs> like at the moment i think soundcloud is probably the most up-to-date with music but yeah you can check out some of my back catalog which is on youtube too absolutely all right 
And we, we talked about it a little bit before, but as an inspiring, you know, what what would you say to like an inspiring person that, that is not quite there, that just is just waiting for that time? You know, there's lots of people out there all around the world. So what words would you give to someone that's like a struggling musician? Well, some of the best advice I've ever been given is better to be ready for an opportunity and not have one than to be given an opportunity and not be ready. I think the people who are most open to grabbing an opportunity for success or any degree of achievement are those who are constantly moving in one forward direction and resilience. You know, it all comes down to resolve and process. If you can get up every day and get back at it, whether you're the 21 year old who just feels that the music isn't reaching people and you're networking every single day, keep doing it. If you feel that your abilities are letting you down, maybe seek out a teacher, maybe, you know, listen to the greats, try and set your barometer as high as possible. Um, not in regards to achievement, but just developing the best version of yourself or the best that your music uh, can be done at. I would just say resilience more than anything. Like if, if anything has stood to me and I would be, you know, I, I would be loath to usually give advice. One thing that stood the test of time was just developing, cultivating an image in my mind of, of what I wanted. And then, following that heartbeat just taking the necessary steps that that brought me to where i wanted to be and where i needed to be and you know you never give up and you never lose that's 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 really my mantra that's it that's it never give up and if it's a passion and you know it's a goal work towards it I, i i totally agree great very inspirational Colin. all right now before we finish i finish off with some a couple of just a random random questions just to get a bit to know you um so are you ready colin go ahead yeah i'm ready all right so colin uh tell us uh your top five favorite artists or bands slash band i'll go from five to one yeah okay so five would probably be the beach boys nice yeah um number four maybe jackson brown and number three would be frank zappa Two would be Leonard Cohen, and one would be Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, right? Okay. Now switching topics, tell us about your top three favorite movie stars. Movie stars, as opposed to movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're going to do both. So okay. uh, movie stars, okay. movie stars first. Well, Marlon Brando would have to be my number one. Um, Good pick. Al Pacino and uh, Bill Murray. Nice. That's excellent. And uh, your top three favorite movies? Number one, I think, would be Scent of a Woman. Yes. Uh, Number two would be On the Waterfront. And number three, I would say Groundhog Day. Oh, nice. I like it. Uh, What was the first record that you bought? Oh... I think the first record that I ever bought was a Frank Zappa record. It was a record oh. called Lumpy Gravy that I bought nice. when I was on holiday in Florida. And um, at the time, now stores, the distribution is pretty much the same everywhere you go. But at that time, when you were in another country, it was, it was much easier to stumble upon rarities. So, yeah, I think Lumpy Gravy by Frank Zappa and the Mother's Invention. Yeah. Very, it's very, very interesting. And what was the last album that you bought? A lot of times I find myself buying duplicates of records that I've lent to people over the years. <laughs> right. I think the last thing that I bought Yeah, it could have been Wavelength by Van Morrison. I think that was the last mm. record I bought. Mm. All right. 
And finally, who is your number one hero? Without question, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. Okay. All right, Colin. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, truly inspiring. Uh, make sure you go onto your so- the social medias and uh, find his music. Keep doing what you're doing. Good luck with the tours and make sure that you come to Australia. Put Australia on your list post-COVID. All right? Thanks so much, Craig. I really appreciate talking to you. Thanks so much, brother. Summer all week for the folks in the sky Still I never hear you knock at the door And your letters never come anymore The choices of a man reflect the trouble he's seen But you lost your faith in love before you turned 19 He's got a face to tear the hair from your skin Sweetheart, what are you doing with him? I know, you know we'll never tell you that you're living a lie for the trees You'll never change the world Until you change your mind But knowing you, you'll do as you please It's only a kiss, but it's hard to define When you can't change your shoes with